hello. Good morning. Good to be with you, uh, both here in the room. Thank you. And uh, those of you that are home, it's a blessing to be able to gather in this way. Uh, we are going to be in the book of Acts once more this morning, so you be can begin to make your way there. We are in Acts chapter 2. I think it's our third time now in Acts chapter 2. Um, but the Lord's been uh, doing a good work in our hearts, I believe. So uh, let's pray together as you're preparing to find our passage. Father, we are, uh, we are blessed to sit under your word. And Father, we know that your word is truth. And to have a place where we can come and we can receive from you is just good and restorative to our souls. We know that uh, there are so many voices that are clamoring for our attention and how we need to be on our guard against all of those things and tone and attitude and message and all of these things that are just coming against us, it seems like, more and more. And to be able to come to a place, your word, where we can rest and we can settle and we can hear your truth, Lord, is what we need. And Lord, you've blessed us uh, with it. So Father, I, I pray that as we sit under it this morning, Lord, that you would use it to minister to some real deep places within us. Lord, you'd, you'd grow us as a result of gathering. You'd challenge us. Lord, you'd bring conviction where conviction needs to be brought. Lord, you'd bring encouragement where we just really need to be encouraged to, to continue to go forward with what it is you've called us to do. Truly, Lord, your word is living and active, and it does accomplish those things it was set out to accomplish. And we pray that we might be able to say that once more this morning. We anticipate being able to say that once more this morning. And so, Lord, be lifted up in our midst, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we are in Acts chapter 2, and we're going to pick up where we've left off. And so we actually read these verses, uh, and, and I made a couple of comments on these particular verses the last time we were together. Um, but today I want to go back, and I want to really spend a, a little, I want to spend a better amount of time on them. And so if you look at verse 37, I'm going to read from verse 37 to verse 41. And they may sound familiar to you because we read them last time we were together. It says this, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the, heart, to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, You should repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, every one whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other things, Peter bore witness and he continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word and were baptized uh, were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now you remember Acts chapter 2, 
Uh, we've done two studies so far in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is the testimony, the, the history of the pouring out of God's Holy Spirit, the promise of the Holy Spirit coming forth on his church, those early disciples, the 120 whom Jesus said, go back to Jerusalem and wait for the pouring out of God's Holy Spirit. And we saw that in the opening verses of this particular chapter. As you may recall, the, the crowds began to come out. What's going on? We're hearing all these people talking different languages. We heard this sound like a mighty rushing wind. What is going on? So they come out seeking to understand. And Peter stands up right around verse 14. He stands up and he says, this, is what, this that you see is the pouring out of God's Holy Spirit. This is what Joel talked about when he talked about in the last days God would pour out his spirit. You're seeing the pouring out of God's Holy Spirit. And he began to explain to them what it was that was going on. And you recall, uh, it was a very, and as I shouldn't say you recall, we see this morning in the verse that I just read, it was a very effective explanation. Peter's sermon had the effect, as God's Holy Spirit worked through Peter, of moving 3,000 people, or about 3,000 people, to respond to the message of the gospel. To respond, they cried out, what shall we do? And Peter said, this is what you need to do. And nearly 3,000 people do just that. We see in verse 37, it says, Now when they heard this, when they heard these things Peter was saying, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what must we do? God, by his Holy Spirit, had opened up their hearts to receive the message of Peter. And that's what we need God to do. When we gather together and we sit under his word, whether it's in a room like this, it's online as some are doing today, it's when you sit alone with your Bible. When we come under God's word, God's Holy Spirit has to do a spiritual work within us. He has to open up our hearts so that they're ready to receive. And so your Bible study is not just an academic time, though there's an academic aspect to your Bible study. It's not just an academic time. And when you're trying to bring a friend to the Lord, or you want even God to be working in your life, that's a spiritual endeavor. And you need to go before the Lord and say, Lord, open up my heart to receive. Lord, cut me where I need to be cut. Convict me. I was just praying. Lord, bring conviction where I need conviction, encouragement where I need encouragement. It's a spiritual work that God's Holy Spirit needs to do. And God had done that work in the listeners of Peter so that they understood two things. Number one, they knew that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah that God had been promising he would send into the world. They knew what they understand it. Peter opened up the scripture to them, and by the Holy Spirit, they came to understand that truth. That's the first thing they knew. The second thing they knew is that they had rejected the long-awaited Messiah. They had killed the long-awaited Messiah. And of course, they find themselves in this place. What can we do? What must we do? We murdered God's anointed one. Is there anything that we can do? We see at the end of verse 37, they say, brothers, what shall we do? How can we escape God's wrath, considering we had just done this particular thing? And Peter responds, and we touched on it last week. He says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Don't miss, we're familiar with our Bibles, many of us that are sitting here taking this sermon in today. But please don't miss this fact. The fact that Peter can present to them anything that they can do is remarkable. We would almost expect, well, for something like that, you can forget it, buddy. That's just over the line. You, you've gone too far. There is no forgiveness for somebody or a group of people that would do that sort of thing. 
We'd almost expect that. That would pretty much be the response many of us would think about giving. And yet Peter says, there is something that you can do. You can repent. And you can be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Amazing, the grace of God. Now, repentance is a word that should conjure great hope in the hearer. And so again, here's this crowd. They're sitting there and they realize it's their fault. They did it. We rejected God's anointed one. They realize a guilt that is upon them. And Peter says to them, repent. That should be a message of great hope because what it's saying is there is a possibility for you. You can be forgiven of this great sin that you've just committed. Repent, a word of great hope. It's a word that communicates you don't have to continue in the direction that you're going. There's hope for you. Change can take place. Now, as we look in our study of the scriptures, particularly as we're studying through the New Testament, I think we see it very clearly. A relationship with God always begins with repentance. Let me take you through a few of these things. You recall when John the Baptist began to communicate, people were coming out to him and he was talking to those individuals. John began his preaching ministry with these words. At least this is what we have recorded for us. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist. When Jesus began his preaching ministry, Matthew chapter 4, very early on in the public ministry of Jesus Christ, he began his preaching ministry with these words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And here now is Peter on the first day of the new dispensation of the church. And what does Peter call the people to do? He calls them to repent and to be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. A relationship with God must always begin at the place of repentance. Now, what is repentance? To repent means to change one's mind. That's what repentance means. It means to change one's mind. It means to think differently about something. And we may not always associate it with that. What we typically associate it with is the long-haired fellow with the sandwich board that's hanging over him, that's walking down the streets and screaming out, repent, you sinners, repent. We typically associate it with something like that. But the word literally has the connotation of changing one's mind. It's the connotation of thinking differently about something. So if you think about these folks that Peter is communicating with, previously they had thought Jesus to be a fraud. You remember in the Gospels? Previously they thought that Jesus was a charlatan. Previously some of them thought Jesus was demon-possessed. And that's where his power to heal people was. They had all sorts of thoughts about who Jesus was, except that he was God's anointed one. Peter is saying to them, you need to change your thinking about who Jesus is. You need to think differently about him. He calls them to confirm something that is already stirring within them as they're standing there before Peter. He calls them to change their mind about Jesus Christ. And so instead of spurning him, any longer, instead of rejecting him anymore as they had done two months earlier and like physically, literally, and even just in sort of the, I don't know what the term is, the, the sense of Jesus isn't physically present, but they were still saying, I don't like that guy. Even in that, Peter's saying, no longer do that and instead receive him for who, who he truly is. God's anointed one, God's Messiah. So they thought a certain way before about Jesus 
Jesus, or Peter is now telling them, you need to change the way you think. Previously, they thought Jesus was worthy of being lifted up on a cross and dying. Now what Peter is saying, you need to think of Jesus as worthy to be lifted up on, in your life and glorified. A completely new way of thinking. They need to turn their thinking around about who Jesus is. Now, in addition to a change of thinking, repentance also involves a change in one's direction as well. And so if you have a change of mind, that must be accompanied by a change of action or a change of direction. And so a person can't turn toward God without turning away from sin. I know many of you have uh, read or you're familiar with uh, John Bunyan's work, The Pilgrim's Progress. It's a, a, an allegorical book that was written in the 1700s. At one point, it was the number two bestseller uh, in the world behind the Bible. Uh, well-known work, good work. Uh, I'd recommend all of you spend some time reading it and thinking through it. John Bunyan's work, The Pilgrim's Progress. And in that particular book, he wrote this. The question was asked uh, of this fellow Christian that's being followed along. The question was, wilt thou leave thy sins and go to heaven, or wilt thou have thy sins and go to hell? And I think Bunyan really nails down the idea of repentance. If you're going to turn to God, you must turn from sin. If you want to keep your sin, you're going to turn your back on God. Again, as Bunyan says, wilt thou leave thy sins and go to heaven, or wilt thou have thy sins and go to hell? When a person repents, there's a change in that person. And it involves not only thinking differently about things, but now it begins to develop a change of attitude toward those things. So consider this scenario. A person might change their mind. They might come to see their actions are wrong, but they are so in love with those actions that they never leave those actions. That person hasn't really repented. At the same time, a person may change their ways, all the while longing so much to be back in that past place and just wishing they could have those things again. Similarly, that person hasn't truly repented of their ways. True repentance involves a change of mind and a change of action. And for these devout Jews that have been listening to Peter, instead of going on as part of the nation that rejected Jesus, they would have changed their mind and their direction by separating themselves from that apostate group, from that nation that had rejected Jesus. Instead, they were to take a stand for Jesus Christ. And Peter tells them how they can do that. In this instance, they can take that stand. We see it there in verse 38. He says, repent and be baptized. The baptism is going to be their stance. That's the second thing that Peter tells them to do. Now, we want to be careful with this verse. Excuse me. At first glance, you might look at a verse like this. And you might say that the, the secret of salvation or the way of salvation, a person needs to repent and a person needs to be baptized. So you might repent, but if you didn't get baptized, then you're not saved. And there are people that teach that. I recall early on in my walk with the Lord running into some groups that taught that particular thing. And I didn't believe it to be true, but their doctrine sort of got a hold of me. It, it kind of got into my mind. It began to play with me a little bit. And I have kind of a streak in me, so I was like, you know what? I'm going to prove you wrong, and I'm not going to get baptized. And I'll just show you when I get to heaven 
that, you know, and so for about four years after I became a Christian, I didn't get baptized because I wanted to prove to this group of people that I randomly met in Illinois that they were wrong, who didn't even know me any longer. And then God began to minister to my heart. Look, it's not about you getting into heaven because you were baptized or not. It's about obedience. It's about taking a step. It's about demonstrating who you are aligning yourself with. And I became more comfortable with the idea, and I, I did. I, I got baptized in a YMCA pool in Philadelphia back in uh, somewhere around 1995, I guess it was. You'd be for me. All right, but anyhow, uh, this verse does not teach that if you're not baptized, regardless of whether you repent or not, you can't be saved. Peter's statement, we might translate it this way. I think it communicates it a little better. His statement is, be baptized because of the forgiveness of your sins. Not so that you can be forgiven of your sins, but be baptized because of your forgiveness of sins. Baptism with water is, was a symbol. It was to be a symbol of their conversion. And so often we say something like, baptism is an outward sign of an inward work. That's the idea. It was a symbol of their conversion. And it cannot be anything more than that. Baptism can't be a part of what it means to get saved because if baptism were part of the criterion for salvation, then salvation wouldn't be by faith alone. It would be by faith plus this particular work, baptism. And of course, the scripture doesn't teach that. What the scripture teaches is we are saved because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross alone. You can't add anything more to that. There was a circumstance, a situation in the early church, and you recall the vast majority of early believers in the Christian church were Jews. Well, time, as time began to go on, Gentiles began to come into a relationship with Jesus Christ as well. More and more Gentiles began to come into a relationship, and the question began to be asked, well, do these Gentiles need to become Jewish in order to receive Jesus, or do they need... Did they need to receive Jesus and then begin to walk as a good Jew would walk? And it came down to the question of circumcision. And so Jews were circumcised, Jewish males were circumcised, Gentile males were not circumcised. And so here's a number of Gentiles coming to the faith, and Jews, some of the Jews began to communicate, well, you need to be circumcised as well. Hey, wait a minute. Nobody told me that was what it meant to become a Christian. Let me think about this a little more. Well, for Paul... It was much more serious than that because the way that Paul saw it was people were adding to the work of Christ. Jesus did this work, wonderful. That's the vast majority of how we get saved, but you must also do this other thing. You must also get circumcised. And Paul called them out for this sin. So whether it's baptism or it's circumcision or it's giving lots of money to some cause or it's being a good person or whatever it might be, that's adding to faith in Christ alone. Here's how Paul addressed that group I mentioned. In Galatians chapter 3, he said, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It's a fun word to use. He says, It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. I don't like to normally add to the Bible, but I'm going to add here. That's it. He was portrayed as crucified. That's it. That's where salvation comes from. He calls these people foolish, and he says that they were bewitched. He says, who's put a spell on you that you've begun to go this direction and add to the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross? No man can add anything to the work of Christ on the cross. He says a little later in that passage, 
He says, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now going to be perfected by a work of the flesh? By going out and getting circumcised, or in our case, in the, where we are, by going out and getting baptized? Baptism does not save a person. Very important that we all understand it. What it does do is make a clear statement of identification with Christ. One of the reasons why when we do our baptisms, one of the things we like to do is put it on our church's social media as well. That person is publicly identifying, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. This is not some little secret thing that I'm going to do in a corner, but I'm going to let the world know. And the way we do that nowadays is social media. I'm going to let the world know that I am identifying myself with Jesus. For this group of devout Jews that was standing there before Peter, to be baptized in the name of Jesus was to reject, it was an expression, if you will, of rejecting those that had rejected Jesus and instead aligning themselves with Jesus. It was their belief and complete trust in Jesus Christ that they were expressing. We were wrong about who we thought the Lord was. Our minds have been changed as to who we thought he was. And now our actions are going to model that. We're going to identify ourselves with him. Baptism became that public statement. Now, they're there in the Temple Mount area. You should know the Temple Mount area. As part of the Jews' worship, they had these little pools, these little baptismal type, what we might see as a baptismal type of place. They were scattered all over. They would go. The people would ritually cleanse themselves. You can see archaeological finds of these things. It's quite interesting. You will, you'll go down sort of one set of stairs into the water, come out another set of stairs, and now you're prepared to go and worship the Lord, having cleansed oneself. Nothing necessarily wrong with that idea, as long as in your mind you're thinking that this is an outward sign of what is really going on within me. And so these pools were scattered all around the Temple Mount area, and it's probably those particular pools that these 3,000 people were now baptized in, where they would publicly identify themselves with Christ, even as they're visibly separating themselves from the nation of Israel that had killed the Christ. But they, were, they saw themselves as a murderous lot of people. I can't believe what we did to God's Messiah. Is there any hope for us? Peter said, yes, repent and be baptized. Now notice Peter says here, it's not only a hope for them. If you look at verse 39, excuse me, it says, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all of those who are far off, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. It's a promise for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord or calls the Lord to himself. Earlier on in uh, the Gospels, prior to, before they put Jesus to death, there was sort of this back and forth here. What do you want me to do with these? They brought Jesus to the authorities, or they were trying to convince the authorities to put Jesus to death. And there was sort of this back and forth. And finally, the Jewish crowd called out, his blood be upon our own heads and on the heads of our children. This is our responsibility. We take full responsibility. We want him dead, and we'll take any blame for that that may come for both us and for our children. And here they are now, and the grace of God is going forth for them and even for their children. 
Again, this is grace. This is the unmerited favor of God that is being poured out on these people who have just admitted we were responsible for killing God's Messiah, the grace of God. Please don't miss it. We become so familiar as we walk with the Lord for a period of time with God's grace that we're like, oh, yeah, check it out, God's grace, that's neat. But it should, like, amaze us. And it should, prom- or it should uh, prick our hearts, and it does that in, in this case for me here. But in light of the horrific sin, in light of them crying out, what should we do to be right with the Lord? Peter says, repent and be baptized. He goes on in verse 41 It says, so those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day, there were added that day, about 3,000 souls. God had moved through Peter's preaching and the evidence of that moving was the way in which the people responded in obedience to publicly identifying with Christ. It's an amazing harvest of souls on this day. Again, we read about 3,000 souls were added. Now, Two, three weeks ago, when we first introduced the, the, the passage, Acts chapter 2, I was explaining a little bit about the Jewish feast of Pentecost that was actually what these people had gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate. We also called it, you recall, the Feast of Weeks. Now, the Feast of Weeks is a Jewish holiday that was given to the Jewish people through God, by God through Moses. We read about it in the book of Exodus, Leviticus, and so on, and it was given to them then. And it was supposed to be celebrated... 50 days after the Passover, and it was a celebration of the harvest. You recall they brought two baked loaves of bread. Look, look what the Lord has given us. You know, he was faithful to us one more season and has you know, provided that we could, we could eat as a people. But in addition to that, it developed, traditionally, it developed for the Jewish people that the Feast of Pentecost was also a time for them to celebrate God's giving of the law to Moses. You may recall, we talked about that. What's interesting to note, on the day that God gave the law to Moses, you recall he was up on the, on the mountain, Mount Sinai, he comes down and the people were worshiping and serving the golden calf and all that was associated with it. And Moses was like, what is going on down here? Aaron, of course, he comes up with that really bad excuse. I have no idea. The people, you know, they gave me their gold. I put it into the fire, and out came this golden calf. I don't know what's going on here. And Moses, what's the matter with you? All right. But on that day, there were some people that were essentially like, you know what, Moses, I'm tired of you. And the scripture says that 3,000 people died in rebellion on that particular day. 3,000 people fell. Isn't it interesting that on the day that the law went forth, 3,000 people died, but on the day that the church is born, 3,000 people are born again and come the new life. And it's sort of the change. It's the difference between the law and grace. We live in great under grace, not under the law. The law kills. The law reveals. You don't measure up. And what you deserve is judgment. The law is our schoolmaster, the scripture says. It's our tutor to point us to Christ, to bring us to Christ. Because our only hope is the grace of God as demonstrated in the work of Jesus Christ. Would you agree? And so we see that here. 3,000 come to life, if you will. There's this great surge of people. What a remarkable morning it must have been. No expectation that on this particular day, anything different from the day before was going to happen. But the Lord said, go and wait in Jerusalem until I pour out my Holy Spirit. And he poured out 
his Holy Spirit on that particular day. He had come. And he transformed that group of 120 that I think they would describe themselves as weak, as uncertain, as afraid, as scared. And he had transformed them so that they can get up, stand in front of this whole crowd of people and boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a sweet uh, encouragement for us. God can change us and he can make us new by his Holy Spirit. Now, I wanted to conclude our look at Acts 2. We have one more section to look at uh, the next time we're together. But I wanted to conclude our look at what happened on Pentecost, what what went down in this particular sermon that Peter shared, by by almost dissecting Peter's uh, sermon. Because Peter was, as the Holy Spirit enabled him, incredibly effective in communicating the gospel message to these people. And I I don't know about you, that's my desire. I want to be incredibly effective. I want to be used by God to help other people begin a relationship with the Lord. Now, perhaps you're sitting there, you think, well, yeah, you're the preacher. Well, the reality is, whether I'm preaching to a group of people, or I'm sitting with my dad, you know, and the two of us are chatting, or I'm sitting with somebody at work, and I'm talking with a group of people at lunchtime, I want to be effective in being able to communicate the gospel to the point where they come to the faith themselves. And I imagine a lot of you do as well. And so let's take a look here at a little bit of sort of like an outline almost of Peter's sermon here. I think it'll be helpful for us to do so. The first thing that we discover about our friend Peter here is Peter knew his audience. He knew who he was speaking to. I think sometimes what happens is we read a book, we, we, we watch some video series on how to share your faith, and we learn a technique, and we follow that technique step by step by step, because when you get to the end of the technique, out pops a Christian. Well, I don't know about you, but that's not how it works. First off, everybody is different. And Peter knew his audience. He knew the things that they were dealing with. He knew the way, basically, that they thought about certain things. A helpful thing for you to do is compare Peter's sermon here in Acts chapter 2 with another recorded sermon we have in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17. Now, in that case, it's the Apostle Paul. And so in Acts 2, it's Peter who is speaking to a group of devout Jews. Over in Acts chapter 17, it's the Apostle Paul who is speaking to a group of highly educated Gentiles or Greeks. And one of the things that you will notice is different audiences is their message is different. Now, let me be careful. The end point is the same in both sermons. It's salvation through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's the end point. The way in which they got there is different for Peter than it is from Paul. And the reason is, is because they both knew their audience. And so they didn't follow some script in order to get there. Peter's audience, again, devout Jews, They were well-versed in the Old Testament scriptures. And so we see in Peter's sermon, he carefully unpacks and exposits the Old Testament scriptures. Peter knew that his audience, as devout Jews, was highly interested in God's anointed Messiah. And so Peter takes him through who God's anointed Messiah is, what would happen to God's anointed Messiah, and how the Father would respond to that occurrence. And he digs into that he develops that Paul goes a completely different direction but they both end up in the same place so they adapted their messages 
to their hearers. Again, we're not telemarketers. Some of you have worked in that industry, and you know how it works. You start on a particular page, and if the person says this, then you flip to the green tab, and you continue the conversation. And if they say this, oh, make sure you go over now to the orange tab. And you take them through to the point where finally, like, wow, you know everything I'm thinking. I'll buy your product. We're not telemarketers. It's not the same thing for every person. We don't have some manual that we have out in front of us and just follow these particular steps and again, out pops a Christian. So when we deal with people, we remind ourselves that everyone is different. And so the first thing we learn is that Peter adapted to the situation in which he found himself. And because he did, I would suggest to you, he was all the more effective. So as you share your faith with others, I would encourage you Become a student of the person or persons that you're dealing with. Begin, maybe you already know them. All right? You work with them, you know a lot about them. And so begin with that knowledge base. If it's someone you've never met before, before you start talking, begin to ask some questions of them. Find out where they're at. Find out what ticks with them. Find out what sorts of things they think about. What's the base from which they're working from? Know your audience or the individual. And so do they come from a Catholic background or maybe some other kind of Christian background where they have a loose understanding of who the Lord is? Or are they a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Hindu or an atheist or something? You're going to go a different way with those two different groups of people. And so make sure you're aware of that. All right. But again, to be clear, in all places, the place where we end is what? The cross of Jesus Christ. That's where we end. So we're not watering down the gospel, we're not changing the gospel, just the direction to get to the gospel. Secondly, notice with Peter's message here, and again, I know it was last week that we really looked at the message, so if you weren't with us, go back, spend some time with it, but you'll notice with, with Peter's message is how packed with scripture it is. Again, we have 26 verses recorded for us in our Bibles of Peter's message, 13 of those verses are direct quotes from the Old Testament. And so Peter's message is packed with the word of God. So Peter's not sharing his thoughts and his ideas, but he's boldly proclaiming the word of God to his listeners because he knows that God's word is the only source of authority, first and foremost. And as the prophet Isaiah has said in the Old Testament, that God's word does not return back void. It doesn't come back empty, but rather it accomplishes what it was set out to accomplish. And so as you get God's word into people's minds and thinking, God's word resonates in people's minds and thinking. And so when they're drifting off to bed, God's word is resonating in their hearts and in their minds. As they're, maybe they were mad at you, this guy, telling me that Jesus, God so loved the world, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish have eternal life. I get it. You know, I don't know if it works exactly like that, but you understand the point that I'm trying to make. God's word gets in there and it accomplishes. This is what it, it tells us here. Uh, I have down that it says Acts. This is from the book of Isaiah. It says, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose 
and will succeed in the thing for which I sent it. What an incredible promise, isn't it? As you share your faith with those you care about and those you love, or even some strangers. I hope you love those individuals, but just people you come in contact with that you want to see begin a relationship with the Lord. What an incredible promise that his word will not return back void. There's power in the word of God. And so Peter's sermon is scripture-centered. Peter's sermon is also Christ-centered. Peter was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to a people that were in danger of being judged for their sin against Jesus Christ. So this is not a time for Peter to get off into some message about the pygmies in Africa. You talk to people, and well, what about the pygmies in Africa? And you get sidetracked to, to begin talking about that. I don't know if you've never heard of that. Some of you are looking at me like, what are you talking about? But well, people will say that. What about the folks that live in some community that have never been touched by the gospel? What about them? This is not the time for that. The people that are standing before you are guilty in their sin against Christ, and you're preaching forgiveness of sin against Christ. Don't get sidetracked. Sometimes we get sidetracked. Well, tell me this. Like, riddle me this, you know. Where did Cain get his wife? Or can God, is God so big that he could build a rock that he himself can't pick up if he's omnipotent? Oh, he can't build a rock he can't pick up? Well, that's something he can't do. Then he's not, ah, you're really, where are we going? What are we talking about? Does this really matter to you? Stay, keep the main thing the main thing. Keep bringing it back to Jesus Christ. I think you would say something to the effect of, you know, that, that is an interesting question. And perhaps that's something we can consider later. But let's come back to this idea that we were talking about, which is Jesus Christ. Peter does that. He keeps Jesus Christ as the main thing in his sermon. More often than not, those are attempts to sidetrack the issue to get the, the heat off of the individual. Keep the main thing the main, main thing. Keep it Christ-centered. In addition to that, Peter doesn't even get off and spend much of his time on himself. Sometimes I think that happens as we're trying to share our faith with other people. And we begin to tell our story and all of the details of our story, and it goes on and on and on and on, and when all is said and done, the person knows everything about you, but they haven't heard much about Jesus. And so Peter doesn't even get sidetracked with his own story, but instead he focuses on the story of Christ. There is a power in the message of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that has the ability to change a person from the inside out. That's what people need to hear. And I would suggest to you that's a longing that people want to hear. Spend your time on the main thing. And so we see Peter knew his audience and thus adjusted his message to that audience. We see that his message was scripture-centered, even as it was Christ-centered. The fourth thing that we see is in Peter's sermon, Peter called sin, sin. Because before a person can truly appreciate the good news, they need to understand the bad news. The essential message of the gospel is that a person can be forgiven of their sins. And so Peter need to call out sin as sin. Imagine if Peter's message was something like this. Would everyone here like to know that God loves them, loves you, and has a wonderful plan for your life? Yes. Well, yeah, I would like to know that too. But what I need to know about is my sin problem. What if Peter's message was something like, guys, today I want to talk to you about five steps to discover your destiny. 
And he spent his time talking about that. These people would have died in their sin had they never heard the truth. These folks didn't need to hear about how they can have their best life now or how to discover what it means to be a son or a daughter of the king. That's not what they needed to hear. What they needed to hear was how they could have their sins forgiven. What they needed to hear was what could be done about the judgment that they had become convinced they were under. They needed to know that sin was sin. People outside of Christ are lost. They're spiritually dead. Even as each one of us, if we're in Christ now, even as each one of us were spiritually dead before beginning a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I know that calling out or calling someone a sinner, I know that it's not a very popular message in our particular day, certainly not in our culture, even in many of our churches. And yet if a person is going to come to the place of a right understanding of their need, they need to know about sin. Every one of us are sinners in need of a savior. The bad news has to go forth first before a person can truly understand the good news. The next thing that we see about Peter's sermon, this will be the fifth thing that I take notice of in his sermon, is Peter was incredibly bold. This wasn't something that Peter had just come up with and, you know, I'm going to give it a shot. I, I, I think this might work. You know, because then you would have some self-doubt through the whole process. Peter was incredibly bold because he knew this was God's plan to communicate this message that these people might experience salvation. I speak about his boldness. You remember on multiple occasions, Peter, as he's talking to this crowd, he said to them, this Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, he put it on them. He laid it on them. Some of those folks were the very people that put Jesus to the cross and had the power to put Peter up on a cross, perhaps, or stone Peter or whatever it might be. And yet Peter, not knowing exactly what's going to happen at the end of this message, boldly got up and he spoke the truth nonetheless. You guys have sinned against the Lord. He boldly proclaimed truth. And then finally, as we began our study today, Peter preached repentance. Peter brought his message to the place where his listeners, and in our case it might be a group of people we're talking to or one person that we're talking to, but Peter brought his message to the place where his listeners were challenged to make a response to that message. So Peter wasn't content to let his listeners walk from that place sort of having heard a nice message, but instead Peter calls them to respond. What are you going to do with what you have just heard and where you just are? Peter says you, are to you need to repent and you need to publicly identify with Jesus Christ. A good question is, what are you going to do with what you've just heard today? Or what do you need to do with what you just heard today? Peter calls his listeners to save themselves from this wicked generation. You see that there in Acts chapter 2, verse 40. And that could be done by agreeing with the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit who had cut their hearts. We've already read that. It was the Holy Spirit who had revealed to them that they were sinners in need of a Savior. It was the Holy Spirit that was revealing to them that Jesus Christ alone is that Savior. Peter says to them, what are you going to do with that now? Are you going to respond? Or just sort of tuck that in your back pocket as sort of an interesting message. He challenged them. And so with that, we're going to bring to a close 
two weeks now, we've been looking at this idea of Pentecost, what happened on Pentecost, the sermon that was associated with Pentecost. And all of those, if we're dividing the chapter, that was sort of the immediate impact of the falling of the Holy Spirit on that first century, first generation church. Next week, we're going to finish up Acts chapter 2, and I'd encourage you, read ahead. It's about seven verses, verse 42 to 47, 48, something like that. Read ahead, because next week we're going to look at not the immediate impact of the falling of the Holy Spirit, but the long-term impact of the Holy Spirit. And you're part of the long-term impact of the falling of the Holy Spirit on that day of Pentecost. So read ahead, try to anticipate what we're going to be talking about, but why don't we close our time in prayer. Father, we thank you for the message of the gospel. Lord, we're grateful Lord, that that simple message has the power to transform guilty sinners into sanctified saints. We thank you that the message of the gospel is a message of hope that everyone that calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, regardless of their guilt, can be forgiven of that sin, can be washed, can be cleansed, can be given new life, can transition from being a son of Satan to a son of the Lord, God. Lord, you're so good. You're so kind. You're so merciful. And Lord, we just admit in a fresh way, none of us deserve your mercy. None of us deserve your grace. None of us deserve the forgiveness of our sin. But again, you so love the world that you gave your son that whoever would believe on him would not perish, but have eternal life. And that there is therefore no condemnation now for those that are in Christ Jesus. And so Father, I just lift up any that are here this morning, any that are online watching that don't yet know Christ, would you bring them to the place where they see their need? Lord, would you bring them to the place, would you convince them in their heart and in their mind to call out to Christ, confident that he will receive them? Lord, would you bring many into your kingdom, even this morning? And we pray this prayer in Jesus' name, amen.